The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Welcome. It's good to be back with you tonight. Another Buddhist studies class while Mark is away teaching another retreat at IMS. Curious how that meditation was for folks. I thought we'd do a little back and forth for a few minutes if you have any reflections. Specifically, wondering if you notice the difference between landing in the concept of body or of the elements versus landing in the experience. If you notice any of the changing nature of the experience and uh, what impact that had on you, your practice. Yeah, I think the biggest impact was at the end there and uh, thinking about the, the last breath or it cl- one, close, one closer. And it was just all this energy started flowing in my body, right? And then the areas of, uh, that were not quite comfortable became less comfortable even. And it just, you know, it just happened. And then it, it slowly eased, but then it, it would come back at, at times. Yeah, that energy. It's great. Thank you. I was noticing that too. I've been practicing with that recollection uh, all week. So really I'm going to talk a little bit more about that tonight. But it doesn't always have a a pleasant feeling tone, does it? Yeah. Anybody else? Well, I was... One of the ways I've been, well, I was practicing uh, a couple days ago, walking my, doing some walking practice in the morning with my dog, and was just having this kind of mantra with me. This could be my last breath. If not, it's at, le- at least, I mean, that's something that we know for sure. It's at least one breath closer to my last breath. And I was feeling that back and forth that Dave was talking about, that kind of uh, relief of that knowing, that relief of not having to pretend that this body is aging, getting closer to death, actually dying, you know, not to be, to be provocative, (laughs) right? Because that's actually what's happening from the time we are born, the body is growing and aging, but noticing that kind of relief that comes from the, knowing the truth. So there's like a little bit of peace and that terror of like, oh God. I don't, and then the defense mechanisms that kick in, like this can't be true. Or, uh, let me just turn away. You know, not even something that I was doing, but just the natural defensiveness to deny the existence of something that is true, something that's always been true. It's not just becoming true because I'm waking up to it, just like it's not becoming true for you as we're practicing. It's always been true. The body has been aging. The body is dying. Every breath is one breath closer to our death. 
And so doing this reflection of the elements or this practice with the elements hopefully helps us get closer to the truth of the body. And that can be useful for a couple of reasons. One reason is that it can remind us of the truth of nature, that this body is not self. And we can see that because this element of fire, heat, is the same element of heat that we, you know, that we have in the natural world, or this element of movement that we notice in the breath is the same kind of quality of wind that we notice in the natural world and so on. So we can see that, oh, we're not so different than nature, and nature expresses itself because of the conditions. Right? The wind will blow when the conditions are right for the wind to blow. And the breath will come, the breath will move the way that it moves when the conditions are right for it to move that way. It's not because of something, it's not because there's an inherent self that's compelling the movement. And then another way that I found working with the elements recently is useful is to notice that inherent uh, need to control. You notice that in your lives ever? (laughs) It's just me. (laughs) But it's so, you know, the body is an expression of nature and we can start to see that when we connect to the experience itself, we can see that we don't have, it's just, a flow, right? Did you, you might have noticed that, that the conditions are just, the sensations are moving, the elements are making themselves known, and our experience of the body is just a flow of processes. It's actually hard to feel, in moments, the solidity of the body. And I can especially tune into this when, with the uh, noticing vibration, becomes a little harder to feel like there is a capacity to control the body or that there is even something that I might even call the body. Like, where does Shelley end and the body begin? Or where does my sense of my body end? Venerable Analio in this Satipatthana Meditation and Practice Guide. Maybe I'll just read it. Our existence is entirely dependent on the outside world, and both are merely changing processes. The division we tend to create between the elements in this body as something I am and manifestations of the elements outside the body as something substantially different from what I am is being put into question. At what point exactly does it feel right to consider food to have become my body? Is it when I have it on my spoon, in my mouth, when I chew, or when I swallow it? At what point does it lose the right to its qualification? When it leaves the stomach? When it proceeds from the small to the large intestine? Or only when it's excreted? That's such a great kind of description. 
Maybe one more thing from Venerable Analio. And this pointing to using the elements to understand the impersonal nature of experience. Just as the earth does not react with disgust when something dirty is thrown on it, so too the mind of an arahant cannot react with anger and aversion. Again, water does not react if something dirty is thrown into it. Fire does not react when something disgusting is burned in it. Wind does not react to the repulsiveness of things on which it blows. Whatever happens, the elements do not take it personally. In the same way, the mind of an arahant is free from aversion and irritation. It does not take things personally. In some way, this ability or this willingness to connect to the elements of earth, water, fire, and wind really kind of open us up to the groundlessness of of our lives. It becomes, you know, we're just using the elements to connect in a way that helps us see more clearly into the impersonal nature of our body, into the impermanent nature of our bodies. And this quality that Dave was pointing to, this kind of energy that can be there in these moments when we really land in the truth of groundlessness, is that same kind of quality that I was feeling on my walk with my dog. It can come with some anxiety and sometimes shock, but that energy is what, you know, it's what is spiritual urgency. That kind of energy that calls us to want to make good use of our lives. Because we know, like, oh, this could be the last breath. So we can use this practice of the elements to wake up to how everything is in flux, there's no self there. And in doing that, get closer to that truth of no ground. There's nothing to really there's nothing to take refuge in. The only refuge is in the letting go. And some vega or spiritual urgency is what the young Prince Siddhartha felt on his first exposure to aging, illness, and death. Ajahn Tanisaro says that it's a hard word to translate because it covers such a complex range, at least three clusters of feelings at once. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived, a chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly, and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. And this is what I tapped into. Even though there was that sense of shock, like, oh, this could be my last breath, and anxiety in moments, what I noticed is that as I continued to practice, This was the real surprise. As I continued to practice, my mind started to get really interested in simplifying. Like, oh, 
you know, it somehow was less important that I return those items to Target or that I complete the organization project in the office. Right? What seemed to be really important was that I practice, was that I stay close to the body, was that I really understand what it means. And in some ways, being close to the body, our own mortality, is like as deep as it gets. So the story of Siddhartha the Buddha, before he was the Buddha. There was a, before he was born, it said that many of you probably know this story, but this is where the teaching of spiritual urgency comes from. There was a prophecy that this young child would either become a great spiritual leader or a king, and his father was a king, and he wanted him to be a king. So to prevent him from being a spiritual leader, he wanted to protect him as much as possible from anything that would be unpleasing to him. So he created three palaces, and he lived behind these gates, these palace gates, and enjoyed all of, the, all of what is pleasant of life, right? And the three palaces were even to protect him from the changing seasons. No sick, no aging, no dying behind those doors nothing unpleasant, because dad didn't want spiritual urgency to arise in the young prince. But as Siddhartha got older, and I just read today that he was actually 29. I was looking for his age. I thought, oh, that's older than I thought when he left the palace doors. You know, I could imagine that youthfulness of, like, I want to see something more at, at some point. But he was a little older than I thought. So he wanted to see something other than what restricted him. And so he set out of the palace on a chariot, and his father had already preceded his adventure and made sure that there was no no aging, no sick people, nobody dying in the path. But it said that a deva conjured up the image of someone old, And this is the first of the heavenly messengers. And it was so shocking to Siddhartha. He was like, what was that? And he asked the charioteer, is this going to happen to me? Is this going to happen to everyone I know? And the charioteer said, yes. And in this shock and despair, he went back to the palace until that kind of urge came back, right? So it's like all of that, ah, seeking, wanting to know, wanting something more, called him back out of the palace. And each time the deva conjured up, you know, another image, someone sick and then someone dying, and it was that same kind of feeling of, shock that drew him back to the palace and then back out until the fourth time he saw a renunciate. Yeah, and I think he, the language is that he saw someone more peaceful than peace itself. 
And so that supported this healthy urge for peace and liberation. So in some ways, our Western culture protects us. It's like the, provides the protection of the palace. Everywhere we look, there's images of youthfulness and pleasant experience. And I remember waking up to this reality, even though, you know, sometimes we know these things, but then they hit us at a different level at some time in our life. And I've talked about having some health challenges last fall, winter. And I remember waking up to this reality in so many ways of aging and dying and one of the ways is like every time I opened my computer or turned on the TV, there was some image of, I was like, wow, there's, you know, only 20-something people living in the world. <laughs> That's just the way it seemed. Every image was as someone young and not only young, but, you know, beautiful. So many ways that our culture protects us from actually landing in that truth of old age, sickness, or death. And these, this information that we take in or receive only reinforces that kind of primal instinct to deny the truth. Like even, there's this another... Sutta, the Jara Sutta. I really like this one. I'll just read it. Now on the occasion, the Blessed One, on emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon, sat warming his back in the western sun. Then Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, massaged the Blessed One's limbs with his hand and said, It's so amazing, Lord. It's astonishing how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer so clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled, his back bent forward. There's a discernible change in his faculties, the faculty of the eye, the faculty of the ear, the faculty of the nose, the faculty of the tongue, the faculty of the body. That's the way it is, Ananda. When young, one is, when young, one is subject to aging. When healthy, subject to illness. When alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled. The back bent forward. There's a discernible change in the faculties. The faculty of the eye, the faculty of the ear, the faculty of the nose, the faculty of the tongue, and the faculty of the body. At least my, as I receive this teaching, it's like, you know, so obvious, like, yes, of course, this is what happens. But that kind of simple, the simple, like, venerable uh, Ananda is so endearing in the suttas because he's so sincere and soft, right? You can imagine him with just a sense, like, oh, you're aging. And Ananda's like, dude, yeah, this is what happens, right? But I love that, even with, you know, just how primal those instincts are to deny so much. So it's kind of shocking, this reality, when we see it. And this is kind of 
how it is for us. Sometimes we need that shock to wake us up and remind us that our life is something to not take for granted. That each breath we have no idea, you know, if the next one will come. And many of us have had these wake-up calls in our lives. And they often come in the form of a loss or an illness, either ours or of a loved one. But if our orientation to life is a prioritizing of the teaching, of internalizing the teaching of really learning from life, then you know, even those moments of shock can be appreciated. Because we're actually getting closer to the way things are, the way things have always been. from Bhikkhu Bodhi. The Buddha says that there are few who are stirred by things that are truly stirring compared to those people far more numerous who are not so stirred. The spurs to awakening press in on us from all sides, yet too often instead of acknowledging them, we respond simply by putting on another layer of clothes to protect ourselves from their sting. The statement is not disapproved even by the recent deluge of discussion and literature on aging, life-threatening illnesses, and alternative approaches to death and dying. For open and honest awareness is still not sufficient for the divine messengers to get their message across. In order for them to convey their message, the message that can goad us on to the path of liberation, something more is needed. We must confront aging, illness, and death not simply as inescapable realities which with which with with which we must somehow cope at the practical level but as envoys from the beyond from the far shore disclosing new dimensions of meaning this disclosure takes place at two levels first to become divine messengers the facts of aging illness and death must jolt us into an awareness of the fragile, precarious nature of our normal day-to-day lives. They must impress upon our minds the radical deficiency that runs through all our worldly concerns, extending to conditioned existence in its totality. It's a little long, but it's so worth it. Thereby they become windows opening upon the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering, which the Buddha says comprises not only birth, aging, illness, and death, not only sorrow, grief, pain, and misery, but all the five aggregates of clinging that make up our being in the world. When we meet the divine messengers at this level, they become catalysts that can induce us, that can induce in us a profound internal transformation. We realize that because we are frail and inescapably mortal, we must make drastic changes in our existential priorities and personal values. Instead of getting our lives, instead of letting our lives be consumed by transient trivia, by things that are here today and gone tomorrow, we must give weight to what really counts, 
to aims and actions that will exert a lasting influence upon our long-range destinies. Before such a revaluation takes place, we generally live in a condition that the Buddha describes by the term pamada, negligence or heedlessness, Imagining ourselves immortal and the world our personal playground, we devote our energies to the accumulation of wealth, the enjoyment of sensual pleasures, the achievement of status, and the quest for fame and renown. The remedy for heedlessness is the very same quality that was aroused in the Bodhisattva when he met the divine messengers in the streets of his village. This quality This quality, called in Pali samvega, is a sense of urgency, an inner commotion or shock which does not allow us to rest content with our habitual adjustment to the world. Instead, it drives us on, out of our cozy palaces and into unfamiliar jungles, to work out with diligence an authentic solution to our existential plight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.